guys, and welcome to the second season of the Yamcast, where we help young adults navigate this world and assist anyone in starting a young adult ministry. We do this by going through some books of the Bible that we are currently going through with our own young adult group. I am one of your hosts, Erica Haas. And I'm the other host, Chris Stukenberg. We love to guide this age group through life and their faith. And this season, we're actually going to cover the book of Ruth. Uh-huh. And we're super excited about it. So if you'd like to know more, check us out at Instagram at the Yamcast or Facebook at Pod, Or you can email us at yamcastpod at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please share with your friends because we all know that sharing is caring. Subscribe, rate, and review on any of the podcast platforms. So this week, we're looking at Ruth 2. Ruth 2. Yep. Ready for the basic storyline? I am. All right. So remember we talked about last week, we're in the the barley harvest. The barley. (laughs) The barley harvest. So remember last week, we're in the barley harvest. And there's a couple things I want to point out when we start talking about the barley harvest and all that that entails. Because it's going to deal with chapter 2 when we start to get to the basic storyline. So let me... Just read a couple of verses for you. Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25, it says this. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you will not put any in your bag. And if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So the idea there is you are, if you're needy, you're able to go to your neighbor's house and your neighbor will sort of help take care of you but you're not allowed to harvest as if it's your crop. Like if you're standing on the city square a couple days later, like, hey, everybody, look at these barley harvests. You're not allowed to do that. No. I pulled the Barney voice Yes, you right. did. All right. So you're not allowed to sell it as your own, but you're allowed to take whatever you need. And then Leviticus 19.9 says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. So here's where I want to go with the, the part of the basic storyline here. Remember when the, the barley harvest stuff's going on, the, the idea, the ideal for the Israelite who is living in God's kingdom, who's living in the land God gave you, your main role is to mutually care for the other Israelites around you. You are supposed to have affection for one another to the extent that if someone is needy, you have parts of your crop that you are expecting to just give away for free. And beyond that, you are leaving the edges of your crop so that if someone has need, they can just come and pick the edges and take it. And that's at any time of the year, whether it's time for harvest or whether it's not. But remember what we talked about last week, the idea that the barley harvest was the, the poorer version of the harvest. When Ruth and, and Naomi show up into town, and we start chapter two with Ruth knows where she's at. She knows what, what she's going through. She wants to care for her family. She steps up and says, I'm going to go help harvest some, some of the, the barley. And the idea in her mind is I'm just going to pull from the edges. I'm going to get just enough to take care of us. And mm-hmm. I'm going I'm to be there and we're going to be able to do this. So basically only thinking of for them to eat. Yes. Not necessarily maybe thinking of for them to make money off of. I believe, that what, I believe that's what's happening. But she ends up working so stinking hard that everyone looks at her and says, whoa, this is amazing. So here's the basic storyline. So that's the, the beginning of that. You need to know those other verses because then it'll kind of make a little bit of sense when we, when we dive into the story a little deeper. Or if you're reading Ruth 2 before you start this podcast, you'll kind of know what the first few verses, what I'm talking about there. So when she shows up to actually help out with the harvest, uh, she might be expecting payment for helping, but she's not expecting the payment that she ends up getting is, is part of what I'm saying. So the reapers who are reaping the harvest, they know who she is when she comes up and she starts just working alongside them and expecting, like I said, to pull from the edges and take that home so that they can just have enough to eat. And they know that she's the Moabite who came back with Naomi, who she wants everyone to call her Mara, if you remember correctly. And we find out Ruth is a really hard worker, so hard of a worker that when Boaz shows up, he's like, who's this woman? And everyone goes, oh, that's, that's this lady who came with Naomi. And he's like, oh, she's working really hard. And he's like, you know what? Leave her alone. And he goes up to her and says, make sure that you're working in my field and my field only. Don't go in the other fields. I don't want you around the other young men. It's dangerous out there is basically what he's saying. Mm-hmm. 
So then she says, how would you have mercy on me? And she bows before him and she's just like, I'm so amazed by this. I'm a foreigner in your land. Why would you take care of me in this way? And we're going to dive into this for the deeper dive. It's going to, we're going to spend most of our time in that idea. And then Boaz tells her, you know what? I've seen what you've done, your character. And we're in verse 11 through 13 now. Your character is so strong and how you've taken care of your, your mother-in-law, how you've been here for her and, and, and taken part of uh, the Israelite way and the Israelite culture, we're hearing about you. So you have every right to be blessed. And actually, I want, I want the full reward to be given to you. And what he means is, I want you to harvest and you're going to keep what you harvest. And on top of that, I'm going to pay you. Hmm. He has no idea that the full reward that's due her is actually him marrying her in a couple chapters. So it's kind of this, foreshadowing it's for this neat foreshadowing for us who know the story. Mm-hmm. When you read it through a second time, you're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I didn't realize he said that. But when he's like, I'm going to give you the full reward. Because that's like her being restored. Totally. You know? Totally. And she doesn't know that. But the full reward he's thinking of is, I'm going I'm to just make sure that you're taken care of. But Because you deserve it. Yeah. Because yeah. you do. And and what's beautiful is just this foreshadow moment of, I'm going to take care of you, but that, that taking care of you is way bigger than what I thought, which is really neat. Mm-hmm. So then we find out she wears from morning to evening. Uh, I had a conversation with my wife this week and we were listening to different podcasts and talking about things. And we were just talking about slaves in the, especially in the ancient times. And she was just saying, I, I just have never really thought about having to work from morning all the way to evening. That's a, that's a unique thing. And I know farmers in our area mm-hmm. sometimes do that, especially harvest time, which is when this is right. Harvest, you're, you're working morning to evening. But, our, you know, the joke is when you plant and when you harvest, you work full time. And then the rest of the time, you basically sit and watch the crops grow. Unless mm-hmm. you're a dairy farmer like James's family. And then you're, shout up, out really, right there. you're up really, really early. And then you're, you're doing stuff until late. I, I get it. But the vast majority of people do not work morning to evening. Yeah, not nowadays. And especially with like labor like this, this is a big thing. So she's just trucking it. She's doing an awesome job. And we start to see her work ethic a little bit. She works super hard all day long. She gleans the grain, she beats out what's left of the barley and gets the, the seed. And the amount of seed that she's created in one day is 22 liters or an ephah. And that ephah, so if you think about 22 liters, that's, a, that's 11 two-liter bottles of, of, you know, Coke, Diet Coke, Pepsi, whatever you want to drink. You're hold, imagine holding 11 of those trying to come out of the store. That's what I was trying to imagine mm. to like teach this. Just imagine that many bottles. And she's got a bag flung over her shoulder full of that much grain. And you're like, whoa. She not only worked hard, but she's really good at what she does. So she shows up back at home and Naomi's like, what did you do today? And, you know, you were gone all day. What happened? And she's like, oh, I, you know, I worked for this guy named Boaz. And Naomi goes nuts. Like, oh, Boaz is the nearest redeemer to us. Like, you should totally keep working with him. This is a great idea. And it's this beautiful thing. And then she says this thing too. I'm afraid of you being assaulted. Don't go anywhere else. Stay with him. Make sure that you avoid that, uh, all the other people. Which... The fact that Boaz brings it up, the fact that Naomi brings it up, tells me this is a very common occurrence in Israel at this time, women being assaulted. So unfortunately, this isn't, uh, you know, we, we hear about it today and we think, this is terrible. This is such a new thing. It's been happening since the beginning of time. People are trash and they do terrible, terrible things. But I also want you to see that not everybody in Israel is buying into the ethic that God has set forth, right? Mm-hmm. They already have the law. They're in the land. Uh, you know, if you go back and read the, the Torah, they, they're talking about, we're going to, you know, we're going to be in the land that God gave us. We're going to do all these things, but they're not, they're not taking the law and, and letting it change their hearts. And so it's a dangerous place for a woman. It's a, it's a, it's a bad thing for people to be going through all this. And well, I think we just need to remind people that this is happening during judges too, right? Yes. Because we can kind of get back into the mentality of this is maybe separate, but really, and then when you remind yourself of that, that this is happening during that time, oh, not a lot of good happened during that time. So that can kind of remind us that still, like, yeah. not a lot of good happening. Yeah, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And on top of that, you've got an individual like Samson who have issues and they're supposed to be the good guys. So it tells you there's some situations mm-hmm. going on. Now it's time for the deeper dive. A little more operatic wow, this week. Wow, that's good. Nice. You just wait till we get to the Enneagram. I can't oh. wait. There's a little Easter egg in it, and we'll see if everybody catches it. <laughs> All right. So deeper dive. I, I want to dive into just one idea this week, and it's big. It, it probably speaks to our time. I think it's probably the most valuable piece of Ruth, Ruth 2 is 
her just falling on her face saying, I'm a foreigner in your land. Why would you treat me this way? And I appreciate her heart in it, her misunderstanding, her looking at Boaz going, I don't deserve this, this mercy. What Mm -hmm. are you doing? But (laughs) here's, here's where I want to push this and help it think it through. And it kind of deals with the grand storyline of scripture. And like I said, it's a deeper dive. So we're going to go into it. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of the, the people of Ur, this, these Babylonians, so to speak. And so right after the Tower of Babel situation, we have, we don't know how many generations from that. There's this guy named Abram who hears from God and decides to do what God asks him to do. And what God says to him is, I am going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. Your name will be great, which is really cool. It's a neat tie into chapter 11. And, and I don't have time to get into all of that because we could, you know, we can go hours on this deeper dive, but we're going to avoid that because tangents and all that. But for this one, I just want to point out between that and then you move into Genesis 15 verses 18 to 21, God sort of re-ups the ante and he says, I'm going to give you this land. This land is going to be yours. But if the land is going to be yours and your job is to bless all nations, your, your job is to bless everyone around you, the job of Israel wasn't to shelter themselves from all the people around them. Mm-hmm. Their job wasn't to know God and hold on to that so that everybody else could be like, I wonder what's so great over there that's going on. Their job was to set up residence in the space that they were, redeem it for God's glory, and then use it to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You're, they were supposed to use it by God's power to actually impact the people around them. So when you look at how they you know, they have these constant battles with the Philistines and everyone else. And I'm not saying they, they weren't supposed to battle because as we mentioned in Judges, there's some supernatural issues going on there. There's yes. giant people, there's issues. And I think a grand part of the, the actual clearing of the land, because Joshua actually says this in the book of Joshua, now that we've defeated the Anakim, we're ready to take part of the land, which means they've destroyed the giants. So all of the giants, whoever they all are, they since they've cleared most of them out now they're able to set up shop which means we've moved the supernatural rebellion out of the land now we're able to do our thing but they didn't clear the whole land and there's people groups still around them like moab is down the road you know if you looked at the map from last week you see it's not too far away and when you think of moab you think of this group of people that started from an incestuous relationship between lot and one of his daughters they have a bad start but there's no reason to believe that they don't believe in Yahweh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We know that the Israelites are following Yahweh, uh, or at least supposed to be, because they actually bear the name. But it doesn't mean that there's not other nations around them that are actually at least somewhat subservient, or at least know about him. So there's a chance that Ruth, before Naomi even shows up in town, at least knows of Yahweh. Knows a little bit. Yeah, or has heard of Yahweh. <clears throat> and in the middle of her having this experience of just knowing what's going on when the Israelites show up and they're like, we're going to marry you. She might be just thinking, this is, this is great. It's a great connection for me. This, this, I actually believe in this guy, you know, this is, this God, I should say, this is awesome. And the thing is, Ruth isn't the enemy. Moabites weren't the enemy. What Israel was supposed to do was set up shop and impact those nations around them. Now, all of the nations around them, Moab, Edom, Ammon, like they're all having issues and they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing and they end up getting cursed for it later on in the prophets. But but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand on this. I believe that in the beginning of this, at this early part of the land, Israel's job is to actually impact these people positively and show them what it looks like to follow God. Unfortunately, at the time of this, as we just talked about, it's time of judges. Everyone's doing this right in their own eyes. And so they look at all the nations around them and they think these are enemies. We need to destroy them all. I can't believe they're here. This is ridiculous. God, why are you letting this happen? Whereas their actual idea is supposed to be, how can I humble myself before the Lord and use what God's given me to impact them for the positive? And what's so beautiful is Ruth comes to town, a widow, a Moabite. She has no right to anything. And she decides, I'm going to take care of my mother-in-law, which shows her character and, and her ethic and who she is. And she goes and she decides to work. And Boaz sees that in her and takes the moment to say, you know what? I'm going to set the example. This is what it's supposed to look like to love our neighbors. 
And he does it in, in an extravagant way. And I, I love that idea. And I just want to like sit in that for a long time. And I, so we're, you know, we're going to move on in just a second. I'm just going to read a couple passages for you and let you think this through. But I just want you to know, like the idea of what Israel was supposed to do was not what ended up happening. So, so often we read the scriptures and we're like, Israel's really messed up. So it's not a big deal if I'm, if our church is really messed up. It's a terrible deal if your church is messed up. Like if you're not loving your neighbor, if you're not taking care of the brokenhearted, if you're not loving the widow and the orphan and mm-hmm. all of the things, then we have just as right to be judged as what Israel was when the prophets come to town. Isaiah, I'm going to, I'm going to read a passage from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and then I'm going to look briefly at Micah. And the idea there was this was specifically for your neighbor, right? The barley harvest idea. You're going to take care of the people around you. You're going to love them. But Israel is supposed to love each other so much so that the other nations would look and go, I want to be a part of that too. And the beautiful thing is God folds these enemies, quote unquote, into his story by bringing them to town at just the right moments and giving people like Boaz a chance to say, you're missing it. This isn't about Moab being the enemy. This is about a woman who has faith, a woman who has confidence in God, a woman who, even though she's of a different nationality, she is beautiful and in her heart and who she is and what she's all about. And she's someone that we can put some trust in. So we're going to give her what she doesn't quote unquote deserve. And then she's going to experience that and just be blown away by it. So let me read some of the judgments that God gives Israel. Isaiah 1 is one. And I just want to read a little portion of this. And what he says, the prophet Isaiah says this, have I had enough of your, all of your offerings? That's kind of a, a bundle from 11 to 14 of chapter 1. And then he says this in verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I'm not going to listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Imagine showing up to a Christmas party and you're just covered in blood. That's the idea. You, mm-hmm. You're showing up to these parties like, oh, God, I love you so much. You know, imagine coming to the Christmas Eve worship service here and you're just covered in blood. We're probably not going to let you in. We're probably going to have a discussion about what did you do? Why did you just do this? And what he's saying is that's who you are. That's where you're at. So what does he want you to do? He wants you to wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from your, these deeds from your eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, and bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. And we're like, whoa. So what God's asking for there is not just to do empty sacrifices or to go to church or to do mm-hmm. this thing. Your job is to actually live out the idea of what it means to love your neighbor and to love your neighbor well. So then he says this in Jeremiah 7, as for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry for them. Do not intercede for me or with me because I will not hear you. Do you not see that what you're doing in cities of Jerusalem and the streets of Jerusalem, uh, sorry, cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, the children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, the women need dough. Everybody's going about their lives basically is the idea. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods. You're not worshiping the one true God. You're worshiping something else, anyone else. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pour out my wrath in this place. And you think, well, what does it look like to worship other gods? Well, if you go to verse 23, I want you to obey my voice. I want you to stop acting this way. You've, you've walked in the, your own counsel. You're in the own stubbornness of your own evil. And the idea here is, back to verse 22, you've, you're doing all these sacrifices and burnt offerings with a wrong heart. So we see a consistent pattern through these prophets. If we go to Zechariah, uh, this one's a little bit later in the Bible, um, in the, sorry, in the Old Testament, but Zechariah chapter 7, verse 8. And I just want to read this verse, and I want you to see just the pattern that's starting to develop here. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I want you to render true judgments, justice. I want you to show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not uh, here. So you're thinking, okay, all right, Chris, fine. So the prophets are saying this stuff. What's the big deal? The problem is we don't think this way. We think God's given us mercy. He's given us grace. We have this great church building. We have these great things. Look what God's done for us. And when we start diving into the deeper dive here, my problem is we take, we take credit for what God has given us. And we think that that's because we're so good as opposed to realizing that what we think we're doing that's so good actually neglects what we're supposed to be doing, which is taking what God has given us and loving the neighbor so well that they have no choices but to say, God is so good, I want to follow him too. 
And we miss this part. And this is, this is an emptiness in our gospel sometimes where, and please understand, I'm not saying that if you do all those things, you're saved. I'm saying if you understand what Christ has done for you, if you've been saved by him, as Israel knows they were saved by Yahweh, they then would go live a life that is completely dedicated to other, and they would pour out the mercy that they've received upon other people. And, and Ruth knows that that's not common. So she lays it before his feet and just says, I'm a foreigner. How can you act like this to me? And then you go to the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. You go to all these people in the scripture who are just like, I don't know why you're acting like this. And it's usually Jesus or the Christians who are starting to act so different than everybody else. But then today, you go to today, and, and so often churches are like hunkered down in their building, yep. hiding, freaking out about a, a, everything in life, trying to push their agenda and make sure that they get what they're supposed to get. And we're, we're, we're doing the same thing. We deserve a prophet to come to us and just say, you know what? All you're doing you're is, is you're coming to me with, with empty hands mm-hmm. or hands covered in blood because you're not realizing that all the people around you need to be taken care of and you're just not doing it. And that may seem really judgmental, but it's just the reality of the world that we live in right now. Like that reminds me in Isaiah 58 um, when he talks about, yeah, I mean, he talks about this exact thing where he's talking about how they're like, why aren't you listening to us? We are fasting and we're sacrificing for you. And God's like, hold up. He's like this. He says, is this not the fasting that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? It is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. And he keeps going on, but it's, it's exactly that. And obviously they're saying this because this is not happening. And it still is happening today. I mean, it just reminds me of Ecclesiastes when he's mm-hmm. like, Nothing is new under the sun. We keep repeating the same things over and over and over again, and we don't quite seem to get it. We get it for a while, but then after a couple generations, they start doing it again. You know, like you look around and you're sitting there going, what's going on with our world today? It's the same thing that's always been going on, you mm-hmm. know? And for me, that is hard because I just feel like, man, that, how do you have hope when it just doesn't ever seem to be different, you know? That's where I struggle especially right now, just like, yeah. I'm like, where, how do you, how do you continue to have hope? Cause we're told to when it just seems so yeah. like, cause yeah. in Ecclesiastes, it's just like, mah, mah, it's not going to change, you know? And you're just like, Oh, that's, he doesn't quite say it's not going to change, but he says just the same. You toil, you work, you go to bed, you wake up, you do the same thing every day. And, but yeah, we're not, we're n- not getting that. We're supposed to be looking for the needs and meeting them with what we have that is extra. Instead, we take what's extra for ourselves. Same thing with you were talking about with the mercy. We take it yep. for ourselves. The grace, we take it for ourselves. And we sit where we are and don't let anybody else have it. So Boaz is setting us an example. <laughs> and Ruth is the recipient, which is a beautiful picture that's going to be replayed over and over and over in Scripture. And how I want to close this deeper dive of this thought for us is just this. To take a position of humility and invitation from God and invite others in because God has invited us in, we then pass that on. We don't take a position of pride or suspicion or fear of the other. Our job is to reach out and create bonds and actually build relationships with others and draw them close to us. Because if all we're doing, and I think about like youth camp back when I was a kid, I knew that I was a sinner and I would think, God, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you this. And I would try to make all these sacrifices up in my mind. Like, God, if I mm-hmm. just give you all these things, you're going to take this from me. And the moment that I realized Jesus saved me and I don't have to do anything for it, I just accept this amazing gift. That was a, a life changer for me. But then when I think about all the sacrifices that I tried to offer over the years that I failed on, and then I start reading the scriptures and I notice what God is saying is, I don't need your sacrifices. It was never about the sacrifices. Yes, I gave you the sacrificial system. Part of that was just so that you understood in your own heart what's going on, but I knew you weren't going to get it. I'm going to give you a better sacrifice later in Jesus. But here's the idea. Instead of just trying to find ways to sort of make up for it or, or earn your salvation, the idea is to understand what you've been given and then to love the other so much that you invite them in. You invite them into this conversation, this story, this thing. 
And so what God says in Micah 6, and this is the verse that most of us know, but will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for your trans, uh, transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of the soil? He's like, I don't want any of that stuff. But I've told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love ki- kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And the idea there is this. If you're focused on the other, you're less focused on yourself. So you're less concerned about your own sin. You're more just thinking, how do I love other people and how do I do that? And so for emptying ourselves continuously, we're going to live in a different life and a different way than we, we do. And so Boaz is setting a really cool example for us that I just wanted to pick up on and spend a little time in the deeper dive. Let's get practical. Let's get practical. Practical. I've noticed that you're back to teaching. Yeah. Um, so your voice is. Uh, you might notice a difference in my voice from the beginning of this podcast to right now. That's because we took a couple of day break. A Sabbath, if you will. And. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I'm back to working with students. Well, children, I should say. It's more like summer daycare, and that means I talk a lot during the day so my voice is a little a little raspier yeah it's part of the reason why we had to start it uh start this part over because we're starting later than we normally record and every all of our schedules get messed up yep so so yeah bear with the drop in like three octaves of my voice <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> So how do we get practical with, with what we're talking about here in Ruth 2? Yeah, so there's quite a few things that I found. And one of the first things was to do what is in front of you. So Ruth, what did she do? She did what was in front of her, which was harvesting some barley. They needed food, possibly money. It isn't glamorous, but it's what needed to happen for them to continue to survive. So if you're struggling with direction, if you're struggling with with what God wants you to be doing, start with just doing what is right in front of you. God doesn't usually give you three steps ahead. Doesn't even usually give you two steps ahead. He literally is just like every day, faithful moments every day and do what is in front of you because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. So if you're in that boat where you're kind of like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing and you're kind of looking for the big things, God's not always in the big things. A lot of times he's in the small things. So just do your next step. Do what's right in front of you. So, and I think that Ruth does that. I mean, she's not out the gate looking for a husband to redeem her. She's, we we need food. So, does what's in front of her by getting them food and potentially money. So, mm-hmm. which is a good understanding of the the Hebrew understanding of God. It's when we read that he's a shepherd or a good shepherd, we think he's going to provide everything we need. No, what a shepherd does is gives you enough food for today, and then he leads you to the next spot where you're going to get enough food for tomorrow. And so the idea here is a faithful obedience, walking with God. He's just going to give you the next step, and then the next step, and the next step. So do what's right in front of you. Mm -hmm. I like it. That's good. What else? So my second one would be that character speaks for itself. So I don't think... Ruth thought, I'm going to do these things for Naomi so that people will see me in this light and then X, Y, and Z will happen for me. She is that type of person. So does those sorts of things of being faithful and helping people and, yeah, supporting someone else. And that, her character, gets known. I mean, that's what Boaz says to her, you know, like, I've heard of what you have done for Naomi. And I think that is what ends up setting her up for a lot of success in the rest of this story is because that's just who she is. And so her character um, like went before her basically and almost prepared the way. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, I love that. You can't fake character, Mm -mm. right? I mean, integrity is, is built by the right choices over and over again. So yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a really good way to get practical from this. And it's a really good, yeah, it's a really good mindset for us to get in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Characters developed and integrity is developed. And and I think you really see it when it's hitting the fan, right? Like mm-hmm. she didn't have to stay. She could have complained. She could have whatever, you know, fill in the blank. Um, but she decided to stay with Naomi and... With, with that, 
is going to be a lot more hardship, I think. If she would have went back with her family, they would have supported her and taken care of her, whereas now she basically has to do that for them. So, um, so yeah, I think that was really cool that he noticed that and made that known to her and, yeah, basically in some ways rewards her for that, which that's not why she did it. But that is kind of what ends up happening with your character is good things do usually come. Not always, but you're more likely to have good things coming towards you than negative things if your character is positive. So, And my third thing is God has a plan. Like when we talked in the very beginning of the basic storyline and just kind of, you know, dissecting what was supposed to happen with your fields, if you were basically the one that owns them, God has a plan to take care of his people and it's through us. We don't necessarily do it well, obviously, like we don't. So when we're always like, oh, somebody should go do that or somebody should feed them or we shouldn't have hungry people, like that's because we are the ones that are supposed to step up. God does have a plan. He has already provided for them. We just need to do it. Like the excess we usually end up taking and hoarding rather than giving. And I mean, that's, you know, what you're talking about with leaving the edges of the field and not picking up things that necessarily fall and letting things letting extra be there for those people who really need it. Whereas we have our savings account and we throw away food because it's gone bad because we never ate it because we bought excess, you know, instead of, yeah, basically being the hands and feet that we're supposed to be. Yeah, I love that. And I think a lot of people that I've heard over the years have said, you know, Jesus is a communist or or a socialist or something like that. You got to see the difference here. What, what communism and socialism, and for, by the way, for anyone to say that is utterly ridiculous because both of those ideologies and they're connected to one another came out of a the mind of someone who wanted to bring godlessness to people or to remind everyone that religion is the opiate of the masses. This idea that they're controlling you, let's give you a better way to control yourselves. But what socialism and communism tries to describe is that you give everything you own to the government and the government then dishes it out. Mm-hmm. Th- that's not what's happening here in Israel. They're, notice they're not giving the edges of their grain to the government and then asking the government to become the welfare state for them. Yeah, true. Which is part of what I struggle with in our, in our own country, in our own context, is this is the idea that the people of God are going to develop relationships with one another and take care of one another. They're going to see a need understand that God has given them something and then give that something to the person who's in need so that a further, deeper relationship can be built. That is the opposite of communism. Mm -hmm. That is the opposite of socialism, which is I'm going to give away money to some unknown entity, the government, and then they are going to compile it and then they're going to benevolently give it out to everyone again. By the way, they skimmed a ton off the top and the people who are part of the government get super rich but everybody else gets super poor. And everyone's like, oh, it sounds like what Jesus did. No, it's not even close. Like, yeah, yeah, no. The idea of what the Bible's <laughs> describing here is that we love each other enough to actually see the need and meet it. Yeah, and lastly, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, most likely in the yam spot. But when we were talking about the foreigner and welcoming them in, um, a lot of that just stops when we when we get rid of the judgment. So... Um, already in our minds thinking certain things of people that are not true because people are individuals. They are not a part of a mass. And we like to paint everybody with a broad stroke instead of seeing them as all separate individuals. And we hate when that happens to us, right? We hate when we're like, oh, you can't carry that because you're a woman or we, you know, whatever it might be. Oh, you can't do that because of X, Y, and Z because they're just painting this broad stroke. And you're like, wait a second, I might own person. I'm an individual. I have unique characteristics and unique talents. So a lot of that comes from listening rather than talking and creating opinions. So that's something I've been challenged with in the last few weeks is to, because I've noticed myself, I'll see a certain person and I'll automatically make judgments in my mind. And I've really been working at saying, no, they are individual. Or I heard this from someone else, too, saying they are part of my family. And that changes start to change how you view them. But I think a lot of it is, yes, listen. 
to their story and see how they are an individual rather than just seeing them as part of a mass. So. I think that's great. Here we go. Enneagram. I'm ready for it. Remember I said there was an Easter egg. I, I, yes. I want to know my number. Erica, show me. Actually, I don't really care what my number is, but <laughs> do you guys see the Easter egg there? You following me here? Do you know who sings that song? No. Foreigner. Oh, look at you. Dude, I tied wow. it all together. What That's is Ruth? So great. Ruth is a foreigner. She is a foreigner. What does Ruth want? She wants to be a part of a family. Which I think really is what I want to know what love is. I think that's all. That's, that's all about song. being a family, right? Uh, something. Something like that. <clears throat> Creating we, a family is that what it's? We don't want to push too hard about? on Easter eggs. We just want to take it at face value. Foreigner, <laughs> yeah. foreigner. Yep. Time. Great. All right. Good. So we talked last week about Ruth being a two, and I just kind of want to dive into that a little bit more. I would say she is far more of a reformed two, which is a word that we use to basically mean healthy. She's a healthier two, because most twos do not really accept help. They actually. Their kind of deadliest sin, if you will, is pride in that they almost give off this impression that they don't need help. And she very – so like when you – usually when you ask a two like if they need help or if they – they would be like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Whereas she very much is accepting of what Boaz is going to give to her and – doesn't really seem to struggle at all with accepting that help. And you might be like, well, she's pretty destitute. But even then, people would be like, no, I'm going to do it myself, you know, and, and I'm not going to accept any any help. But Ruth really accepts it freely. And that is the goal of a two to get to is not only accepting it, but even asking for it. So if you if you are listening and you are a two, that is really where you want to get to is letting people in. It doesn't have to be everyone. You don't have to shout it from the rooftops. But you want to let people in enough to be able to say, this is something I do need help with, and then being okay with them actually doing that. So that is something that I, I see in her that I think is something that we can take from as well. If you find yourself being somebody who's like, I can do it myself. I don't need no help. We really do. And we need to, to accept it. So, and Boaz is our new character. I mean, let's be real. It was really hard for me to be like, what is Boaz? He's perfect, right? And then just getting into the dreamy eye state. But I mean, he's not perfect, right? Because he just sounds so great. What is the dreamy eye state? You know, where you're just like, huh. What number is that? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Any of them could t- potentially be that. But I actually think that he is a two as well. So I think that they're technically both twos. So does that make their children fours? <laughs> I guess if you know your addition. Good job, Chris. Fantastic. Um, so either he sees Ruth and and notices her, if you know what I mean. Um, or cause I know we kind of talked about this and you kind of said that you thought it was that he saw her hard work. I was like, is he just like, I see her, she's pretty. Or he knows his people that are in harvesting so well that he's like, she's different. And I kind of wonder if it's part of that. Cause I see him being somebody who knows people well like I mean even just in this this chapter he's talking it seems like to so many people that he works with but also having meals with them um so I just for one I don't know that doesn't necessarily make him a certain number I just think that's a really cool attribute I think that yeah he knows the people that he works with really well he also knows Naomi and knows the story um of how they are kind of faring and he is rewarding Ruth for remaining faithful which is pretty beautiful it does seem a little above and beyond, like, treatment. I mean, you could have just been like, here's this, awesome. Go do what you need to do. But I think that he, yeah, he goes above and beyond. Like, basically, yeah, telling his men not to touch her, leaving her alone. Um, she can she can drink from what the men have drawn, which I think is a pretty big deal as well. She is free to glean what she needs. So Boaz is a very healthy, whatever... He's a very healthy number, whatever that may be. He doesn't really seem to have, and obviously we don't know his full story, but he just doesn't seem to have a lot of um, like slip-ups and things that get him. So I actually think, as we said, that he's a two as well, where he just meets needs without even asking. He's just like, I see, 
and I know what has to be super hard for you. And that's what a two can do as well is they can, they intuitively can just pick up on those things and he's making those needs. So he's like, I know you're going to need water to continue working. I know that you guys are going to need food. I know you're going to need money. So like continue to do what you need to do. And I'm going to make sure that it's the easiest possible route for you so that nobody bugs you. Um, and that, and that would be what a two would do to, to kind of help that situation. So I would imagine that they both could potentially be twos. So I just feel like I learned a ton about twos. Yeah. Yep. Would you say you're a two? I don't know what I am. <laughs> don't, don't. Isn't that just true of all of us? I don't I care. I don't know what I am. Yeah, I don't know. I don't care. You do care, but you just don't care. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's probably true. I'm just so careful with characterization and typecasting. Mm-hmm. And I, there's a, enough Gen X in me that I kind of rebel against labels. And there's enough Gen Y in me that just says, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't want labels, but I also don't care. Yeah, I don't. I just want to be a millennial and not care. So <laughs> do it. <laughs> I just want to belong. So we move on to the yam spot, our final thought for this episode. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> this is potentially controversial if you don't listen to what we are actually saying. So with that said, I'm about to say a bunch of things, but you need to listen to the entire thought, not just grab one little piece and run and go, he said this. So here's, here's my, my thought for young adults, college students, and especially if you're leading a young adult or college ministry, we are in the midst, as we record this, of really just an uneasy time. I think COVID has led people to be a little bit nuts, and then you add to that some pretty significant racial trials that have occurred in the last couple of months that I sort of feel like the powder, the powder keg just blew up. You know, it just, it's been steaming, getting ready to go. Mm -hmm. And then boom, here we go. Now it's off to the races. So here's my, my thought. And, uh, and then I know Erica agrees with this. And so feel free to jump in and say whatever you want to say. Mm -hmm. But my thought to young adults and college students or someone who's leading young adult or college ministry, just do something. And specifically here, I don't mean just do what everyone else is doing. You don't necessarily need to protest. I don't totally disagree with the idea of protesting. But part of my struggle right now with our culture is we, we protest in manners that don't really do anything. We click like on Facebook and we're like, mm-hmm. I've joined the racial fight. Or we march around a city showing solidarity, but we don't actually do anything. And when you think of of some of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, and this is true for any protest of any kind, but I'm using the civil rights movement as a good example. When you're told that you can't sit at a certain part of the bus, the best possible protest is to fill the entire bus. And that's what they did. Or if you're told you're not allowed to eat in a restaurant, to then pack the restaurant and do your homework so that no one else can eat there until you show people there's an injustice that needs to be dealt with. That mm-hmm. did something. And part of my struggle right now as I watch some of what our country is doing is everyone knows things are broken. And by the way, folks, the political system in general is broken, has been broken, will always be broken. It, we chase after power and might on earth, and it doesn't accomplish what you think it's going to accomplish because – so often the people who end up in power end up being corrupted by that power. And it just it's just the circular ridiculousness that goes on. And part of that is because we find out in scriptures, going back to the Judges series and beyond, there are spiritual forces at work in this planet trying to keep us from doing what God wants us to do. So, so much of what we look at is broken and it's going to be broken, but you can still have an impact no matter how broken it is. And so just do something. Instead of just walking around the street, and if you're, if you're a white person listening to this, and you've taken part in a protest, and you stood there with a sign, and you walked away, and you thought, man, I am such a good person. Look at what I accomplished. Yeah. You stood there with a sign. You didn't really do anything. I, I would rather you call a politician and say, knowing full well in your heart that the system is broken, call the politician and say, what are we currently accomplishing to change the system? Mm-hmm. Or 
yeah, sit down with individuals. It, really, the only way to, to really make a change is back to what Boaz is doing. You build relationships with people. You reach outside of people that are in your normal friend groups. Mm-hmm. You don't look at people as a project, but you long for and you create real and lasting relationships where you dive deep into someone else's life. That's how change is done. So if you want to go to the other side of town, whoever you are, whether you're white, black, Hispanic, you know, go down the list of all the different possible nationalities or colors or whatever, however you want to define people, how many friends do you have outside of that, that normal sphere, right? I mean, if you're, if you're going to a cookout on a Sunday night, maybe you have Sunday night service at your church or something and you get done or your college group Sunday night and you get done with that and you go out and you hang out with people. If you look around that table, is everyone just like you? And if they are, you need to make some relationships outside of that circle. Your sphere needs to get expanded. And I'm not just saying for the sake of being like, oh, great. I now have friends of all different colors. I, I don't care. What I'm saying is you're going to be enriched and you're going to enrich others by actually having deep, meaningful relationships with one another. You can't be a racist if you have a ton of friends that you have deep, meaningful relationships with because you're going to see that people of color, and and I mean that for whatever, if you're not white and you're looking at white folks going, I know exactly who they are, you probably don't know. There's just a really good chance you don't know what that looks like. So over the years, I have had such tremendous relationships with people of color and other nationalities that have helped me refine my thinking on any number of things who have confronted me when I say something and go, man, that's, that's not us, dude. Like, let's talk this through a little bit. And it's way too easy for me to hang out with other middle-class white people and feel like this is my tribe. I feel super great. And it's easy because we all kind of like the same things. We talk about the same things. Uh, but my, my life has been more enriched by having friends from Haiti, talking to people from Israel who have a totally different viewpoint as I do on about everything. It's amazing for me to have some of the relationships with people of color and, uh, you know, friends from China or friends from, you know, one of my, one of my friends that I reach out to fairly often is an African American who lived in China as a missionary for a long time. And he doesn't relate really with anybody when he's in the States. He doesn't feel like he's totally African American. He's more Chinese than he is African American because he grew up as a basically a Chinese person, but he's African American. And watching him kind of think that through and he, you know, he's, he wants to be a missionary and is, is serving the inner city of Chicago, doing some tremendous work with church plants and stuff. He has taught me so much about just thinking and how to think and what's going on and what to be processing. He's confronted me. He's pushed me. He's prodded me. That's beautiful. And that's what we should be aiming for. Way more than just, I'm going to march and I'm going to do this thing. I'm not saying don't march, but do something. So thoughts um yeah i mean that was a lot so it was a lot um yeah so i mean yeah i i've been struggling too with what what do you actually do and really with all the people that i've been listening to have literally just been saying listen just listen just listen a lot of it yeah as you talked about is diversifying your life so i've been adding a lot more different a lot of different people on social media so that my scrolling is different. Um, Watching different videos of what people are saying about their experiences. And I think a lot of that is just humanizing people rather than either villainizing them, criminalizing them, or as we talked about before, like broad stroking them. So, and I think a lot of it also is how you can do this in your own spheres, having conversations. So I've really been having pretty good conversations with people. I mean, they're hard conversations, but with people in my family or with my friends about what does this actually look like for us? Because to be real, a lot of the people in my sphere are white and I want to diversify because I don't, I want to understand. I want to better understand what other people's lives are like. I mean, that's why I love to travel. I love to see what culture is like in other places and how that has influenced them to be the people that they are. So, yeah, don't just – I think that's the thing that we can really get caught up in that you had said. Don't just do the one thing and think, I did my part. That's – 
That's not what this is about. This is not about doing your part for one day or for one moment. It is about changing your mindset so that you become different in the future. And then you influence those people around you to be different. I mean, that's the whole idea of what they've been talking about with anti-racism. Like, so it's not just about this moment because we've been having these moments, quote unquote, for a very long time. And it seems like band-aids get put over them but it doesn't actually do a lot of change and what actually changes is when we change and then we can change the people and help change people around us otherwise it's just policy and if we're going to be real as we talked about the system being broken policy ends up being twisted to be something we didn't even intend it to in the first place as our political system it was not intended to be what it is today so let's us change our corners and then that actually maybe will trickle up. Who knows? And it's moments like this that we can we can feel like America's the worst place in the world. But this is a this is an ancient problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it started in the very, very beginning of everything. That individuals look at one another and think, I'm better than you because of blank. The Egyptians wouldn't eat with Joseph. Joseph wasn't allowed in certain parts of the kingdom because of who he was. And you move forward through history. It's been this way forever. So, I, you know, I saw one young person recently holding up a sign saying, Ameri- you know, racism is America's virus. You've not traveled outside the States then because racism exists everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and even people who look like they're the exact same color, especially to a white folks, you know, white folks sort of characterize people by their skin color. There are individuals who are the exact same skin color that hate each other because of race. And you're like, how is that possible? Because they're a different version of that race. Mm-hmm. Just like if someone mistreated me as a German, uh, right? I, I mean, technically, I, I've got German and Irish blood in me. So someone could say, oh, the Irishman, you know, they go off on me. Or they could say, oh, you're a German, so da-da-da-da. That's the same idea. A German could be racist against a Spaniard, even though they're slightly different color, but not always. Right? You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it's way more than just a uh, a color thing. It's a it's a cultural thing, and we get so upset with America. And I just want to point out this is this is a this is a human issue. It's always been a human issue. It always will be a human issue. The way to fix that in every human issue is first of all to put our trust wholly in Jesus Christ and let Him be the one that leads us and guides us. And as we do that, we will start to see the value in everyone. And as we see the value in everyone, we will diversify our friendships, whatever that looks like, because we'll know that there's value for me in diversifying that as much as I possibly can. So don't do it as an empty gesture. Don't make people projects or whatever, so on and so forth. It's deeper than that. Let the Lord lead you and guide you to change your heart from the inside out so you'll actually impact the world in a better way. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Yamcast. You can check us out at yamcast.podbean.com or on any other podcasting apps like iTunes. We would love it if you'd leave us a review that is any number between four and a half and five stars. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer here on the podcast, you can email us at yamcastpod at gmail.com. That is yamcastpod at gmail.com. If you'd like more information about us, you can check us out at parkhillschurch.com or on the App Store with the Park Hills Church app. We are also on Instagram, so give us a follow at The Yamcast. James, James, wherever I am, it's hot. I mean, yeah, sure.